2: Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer and Tony Hodson of the Coaches Voice Platform. Chelsea have reached a cup final for the sixth successive season. They've only failed to do so in three years since 2005. The League Cup final at Wembley next month will be their third final under Thomas Tuchel in little more than a year. And... If you're counting, they're 18th under the ownership of Roman Abramovich. The defence of the Champions League resumes in February, but in modern football, you're judged by your next game. That happens to be on Saturday lunchtime at Manchester City. So Glenn, is it too much of an exaggeration to say their Premier League title hopes will be over if they lose?
0: Well, you never know, but they'd be 13 points behind with, what, 16 games remaining, which you would have thought was too big a gap to close against the side of the quality of City, who tend to, particularly in the second half of the season, go on runs where they don't drop many points. I mean, to to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure they're going to win Chelsea or anyone else is going to win the title for Manchester City, even if City lose on Saturday. But um, if it was a draw, again, you'd have to say City in the ball, very much in the box seat, they'd be 10 points clear. So if Chelsea can win, maybe, yeah, obviously give them a lot of confidence. It might instill one or two sort of little tremors at City. So it does It does keep it going at least for a few more months, but it's very hard to see City, you know, letting slip a 10-point lead at this stage of the season, even if they did lose at the weekend.
2: Yeah. You know, we're Judging them... In the most immediate basis, Tony on on a win over you know a, a pretty ragged Spurs side on uh, Wednesday night. Let's look at it in the round, if we could. Thomas Tuchel, there were there were times last night where Chelsea seemed back to the team they were about a month or so ago. How has he handled
3: his first real challenge in the job? Do you think? I think as as calmly and as kind of efficiently as you might expect from somebody who's achieved what he has in the game and who did what he did in his, in his first half season at Chelsea last year i think the game last night was actually a pretty sobering watch for anyone who supports tottenham and indeed antonio conte i thought chelsea ran the game in second gear i think in their in their midfielders the three leading central midfielders Jorginho, kovacic and kante they've got three players who know how to run a game and i think of those three i think we've always known what kante is I think Jorginho dictates games when given time and space to, which he was last night. And I think Kovacic has has, has improved beyond measure over time. And I think everyone's now starting to appreciate what a great player he is. So they've got that control in the middle of the park. We all know what they've got in defence. I think they are weakened. And I think no one doubts they're weakened by the absence of Ben Chilwell and Reese James. They are in the system that Tuchel plays. They are both extremely important players. And in the games where they have dropped points recently... It's been that kind of lack of creativity and lack of ability to, to create chances, let alone t- then take them that's cost them. I think, obviously, Tuchel's had a, a couple of outbursts about games having to be played and the number of games to be played. He's not the first coach to come from overseas and, and, and make those complaints. I think they largely fall on deaf ears when you've got a, a squad the size of Chelsea's and, and a club that is running the way Chelsea is. But you know that's not Tuchel's decision. That's the way the club is run above him. As a coach, I think he's doing a splendid job. I I totally agree with Glenn. I think even if Chelsea win at the weekend, I think if you look at Man City's form, both sides of Christmas in recent years, it's just littered with Ws, isn't it? And I think whatever happens, I think City will win the league. I seem to remember coming on the, the last time we previewed a Chelsea City game and I sat and said that I thought on current form and, and expectations Chelsea were probably favourites and, as ever, I was proven completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so I won't make any predictions about this weekend, but I do think, in answer to the original question, that Tuchel is showing what, what a class act he is in recent times. Mm.
2: What about the need to keep Rudiger, Glenn? You know, he's he's entering legend leader status, isn't he? And it's uh, very noticeable how vocal he is and how almost... Dissatisfied, he is, which I think is a fantastic trait to have. He was—he's obviously a perfectionist, and he wants to get the best of that people around him as well.
0: He is, isn't he? I mean, he's one of those players you'd absolutely love to have in your team, yeah. If you're as a, as a fan or as a teammate, though, I mean, it's a rash challenge for the Heiberg. He has got a bit of that in him—the Heiberg thing. Where what did surprise me then was there was never any debate about whether that was a red card. I mean, it, yeah, Heiberg's not the quickest, but he would have got a shot off. So I was surprised that it was all about whether it was inside the box or outside the box, and it wasn't a red card issue. So he has got an element of rashness with him, but he's got a, a fierceness, a ruthlessness about him. I mean, as Kevin De Bruyne will tell you, uh, but he's been a, a huge figure for Chelsea, and I think it's um, it's quite interesting that contract situation, isn't it? it you do get the feeling... I mean, he's got... You don't often have that situation with Chelsea, but you do get the feeling that he has got the, um, the cards, uh, Rudiger. But I wouldn't be massively surprised if he did leave, uh, particularly given what he's achieved at Chelsea. Yeah, fresh fresh challenges, you know, as much as anything. You know, can I go and do it somewhere else? There's an element of that, as well as whatever he may be offered financially somewhere else. He, he came from... Um, Quite you know, quite a difficult upbringing in Germany. So and he's very very driven. So you can see him wanting to sort of push on and see what else he can do.
2: Yeah, but I suppose you get into the realms of well, is this going to be a false economy by not offering him what he wants? Because you know to buy a replacement, you're talking what sixty million something like that. In in that, you know, Chelsea have never been afraid to spend money, have they, Tony? They're not getting value out of Lukaku you know, for his ninety-seven and a half million. What do they need to do, do you think, to get him fit and firing?
3: Uh it's a it's a great question. I mean it would it would frustrate the hell out of me if I was a Chelsea fan watching him. He 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 has got we we've seen him we've seen for Belgium, we saw at Intel, we saw, you know, we've seen at various points in his Premier League career how at his best, at his fittest, at his most motivated, he's an absolute nightmare to deal with. He's strong, he's quick, he's he's incredibly skillful for a guy of his size he's, he's a very good finisher and he just causes defenders nightmares there were signs last night actually that he, he was he was looking a bit fitter and a bit sharper he gave Davinson Sanchez particularly a couple of couple of dodgy moments but um he doesn't look at his best he you know the, the interview that he gave the infamous interview that he gave it's, it's been kind of translated differently in different quarters but it, whichever way you translate it it shows a player that isn't particularly happy now some would argue it's up to him to to get himself fit and firing and show Tuchel how he fits into that team there's no reason why he can't fit into that team his movement last night was excellent I thought actually for the first half particularly albeit again you never know like well, how much of that is down to Tottenham just not really being at the races they, they were much better in the second half I thought but it is a question mark because he, when he came back I think everyone expected he'd just be hitting 20-25 goals a season easily obviously he had his injury problems now there's, you know, talk about his morale, his relationship with Tuchel, where he fits into the team. They have runners around him, but he does like moving out onto that into that right right sided channel. The way Chelsea set up, there is there is scope for him to do that. That then requires runs ahead of him into the middle from the likes of Werner or Zeek, neither of whom are really pulling up trees. Either Mason Mann is the probably the form player in that kind of position at the moment, but. He isn't one who necessarily makes that many runs in the same way that that Werner might. doesn't have quite the pace. So there are question marks. What well, there aren't question marks about is, is how Chelsea can dominate the game and dominate the ball. So my instinct is that over the next few months, a lot of those players, including Lukaku, may well play themselves into form, at which point there's a lot of teams that might want to be where they're facing them.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I thought he was slapped down fairly unceremoniously about the interview and. That may fester. We'll see how it goes over the next few months. I mean, at the moment he's taking his medicine, and he's getting his head down, but we'll see how that goes.
2: Mm, yeah, modern footballers and all that. You're know, talking of modern football. Manchester City, their revenues uh, were up actually to beyond Manchester United's, which is a bit of a you know, more than a you know a, a local um, point proven. They even made a profit in the pandemic. You know they're not hiding their glee at this. There was a, there was a lovely line in in their statement where it said, "Highness Sheikh Mansour's vision set in two thousand and eight is the reality we are living." Discuss, Glenn.
0: <laughs> well, of course, their books. Might have some interesting elements in terms of um, third-party related transactions, at least that, so the critics would suggest. Certainly, you could argue, if you're the Glazers, this is even worse than beating them to the title. The fact they're making more money than Manchester United that, that might get that might get United stirring at the least. But what is I mean, even even with the uh, the likelihood that some of those figures that they've got from sponsor related sponsorships are inflated to a degree. There is no doubt that where City have come from in that in the period since the takeover to, to where they are now it is quite astonishing. I mean, there's network of clubs around the world. You see City shirts in all sorts of places where you never saw City shirts. I mean, there has been an absolute transformation in the club's image uh, gl- globally. Which I think, um, yeah, you have to remember supporters coming into the Premier League in the last twenty years. Yeah, a lot of young people around the world yeah, will regard. City is like one of the big clubs, has always been a big club, whereas people of your, your, my, your, my generation might obviously remember when they weren't such a big club. And, and where they are now is, is incredible. I mean, they've overtaken Chelsea in that respect. And that, of course, was uh, Peter Kenyon's vision that Chelsea would be, you know, this, this massive generating cash machine. And Chelsea still seem to an extent beholden on them, Roman I Abramovich's uh, funding, more than City is, interestingly. Though, clearly, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're beginning to turn a bit more, you know, they're also generating quite a lot of income. I mean, there are other factors, you know, in a good year, with, you, you you make a lot of money out of European football, so that would obviously help. They had a good year in Europe, as did Chelsea, obviously, it'd be interesting there. So, but where they've come from is pretty astonishing, and it will be interesting, of course, is if we're in 10 years' time, we look at Newcastle in the same way.
2: Mm, yeah, well, let's hold our breath on that one, shall we? You know, City, in a football sense, Tony, you know, they're still improving, aren't they? they uh, they're they innovating in terms of, you know, that rejection of a, the convention that a team needs a traditional nine. You've got in Pep Guardiola a great coach operating at his peak. How much better can
3: they get? Oh, in, t- in terms of points in the league in the last few years, they can't get a whole lot better. I mean, I saw saw a tweet from somebody earlier this week that kind of reflects on the fact that you seem to need to have about 150 points to even come close to in the league these days whereas you know you look at some of the some of the league so you think about how dominant man united were in the ferguson era but they won league titles with significantly fewer points than we're seeing manchester city and liverpool in recent years doing it it shows either how far the gap is or, or or how good those teams at the top are and city are the, are the best of them Guardiola's clearly at the top of his game he's still got that he seems to still have that massive itch that he wants to scratch constantly, just winning more and more stuff, doing more and more stuff, innovating. Obviously, there's the question mark over the Champions League, which he hasn't now won for quite a long time and seems to save his maddest decisions for that particular competition. But if you look at the players on the pitch and the football that they're playing, they, are, they look utterly dominant at the moment. He's made some crucial signings and research. Ruben Diaz has been obviously brilliant. Rodri is starting to hold his own in midfield now just look the kind of the quality kind of player that, that we thought he was when, when he signed obviously replacing Fernandinho but Bernardo Silva's at the top of his game in that in that front three and we call it a front three but it's really a front five I guess most of the time but you've got Gundogan's put his injury problems behind him previously is again at the top of his form really important player for Pep Grealish maybe hasn't started quite as well as he would have hoped or others would have hoped but if he doesn't play there, then you move Sterling over to the left and play Moraes on the right. Gabriel Jesus plays wherever wherever he plays, he looks effective. Now, I mean, he's been playing, he's been starting as the as the right-handed attacker in a front three for Brazil for some time. So, I think it's been thought that he's been kind of as the number nine. That really wasn't going to happen for him at City, and but he's he's comfortable anywhere across the front three. The flexibility they've got, the depth they've got. You saw the COVID outbreak they had. Headed the FA Cup against Swindon. Look, look at the team they put out. It was absolutely mm. crazy. And then, of course, you've got the likes of Phil Foden and, and coming through and, and even younger players than like him who look potentially even better. So, I mean, yeah, Glenn's right. Like, they've come an awful long way. They might go further. Who knows? But they look pretty intimidating at the moment.
0: One of the developments they've done, actually, in the last few years, they're starting to sign better defenders in that a lot of his early defensive signings weren't actually that good. They paid a lot of money for one or two players who didn't... want Mangala
2: and people Mangala,
0: like that. Mangala, yeah, Imotemendi, I suppose you could argue, wasn't really worth the price they paid for him. Now, when you look at players like Cancelo, like Diaz, they're, signing, they're making much better decisions when signing defenders. The only thing that slightly concerns me from City's perspective for, for, for Saturday morning's game is... They've had 14 days since the Arsenal performance when they weren't very good, in which they've only based Swindon. That's an awful lot of time on the training ground to come up with something really quirky and wacky <laughs> 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 and try it out against Chelsea. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, we shall see. We shall see. The you know, one thing that, you know, the, that Glenn alluded to earlier, Tony, was the, the impact on the psyche of Manchester United. Right on cue, Cristiano Ronaldo has chirped up saying that uh, Manchester United should only win the league or be second or third. In other words,
3: we're not anywhere near the races at the moment. Well, he's right. I'm not sure how productive or useful that is in terms of the management <laughs> going forward. But I think, we, I think we can all see that United are still so far off. I mean, there's a lot of noise about the players being unhappy with Rangnick's methods, I'm not so sure the players should have a say based on what they've delivered in the, in, in the last few years. Ragnick is, and we've talked about Ragnick so many times, <laughs> but mm-hmm. he is a builder, he's a developer, he's a project leader. They're not very sexy terms, but he's somebody who goes in and builds something, sometimes, sometimes from scratch, sometimes not, but it takes time to instill a style of play, a mentality, a psychology, and also to bring in the kind of players who he thinks will fit the template that he wants to build it's pretty clear from his early days at United that a lot of those players don't fit that template. I mean, yes, they beat Villa in the Cup on Monday, but yet again, they were just hopeless in possession. And I know people talk about the high press, the gegenpress, press, you know, rock and roll football, all that stuff that comes, that's supposed to come with Ragnik. But there's no point in being good at any of that. And they are getting better. They, they, their press was better against Aston Villa than it had been previously. Perhaps no coincidence that Ronaldo didn't feature. But with the ball, they're hopeless. They can't keep the ball. Villa dominated possession Villa dominated large periods of the game Had chances And it wouldn't be a surprise at all If Villa turned the tables in, in in their clash at the weekend So But The problems they're having Are problems that are probably The legacy of the last three Four years of Of, of coaching at the club Which has probably been substandard Compared to their main rivals That doesn't get fixed in six weeks
0: But how do you get a, uh, But Tony how do you get a guy Who's a builder And you say you've got six months Until we actually make a permanent appointment Yep
3: Yeah <laughs> It's a very good point. It's a very
0: good point. And players obviously know he's only got six months. So, yeah, we hang around, you know, got a decent contract, see what the next boat brings. Yeah.
2: Glenn, do you think, you know, and I I I agree with with uh, Tony's, you know, analysis of what's going on there or what's not going on. But are we in danger of going over the top in the criticism? You know, standards have been really poor, but only one defeat in 10 since Oligana social Solskjaer left.
0: Yes, um, I mean, even to a long period while Solskjaer was there. I mean, results have outmatched performances quite a lot at United and because they've got a goalkeeper who's, who's come back into brilliant form and has often saved them in game after game after game over the last two seasons and they've got... Individual brilliance in, in attack in players up like Ronaldo, in players like Cavani, in, in Greenwood's finishing, you know, Fernandez last year, not this year, obviously. So they've, had, they've got individual brilliance that means they can overcome the collective awfulness. And, and somehow hang in games through De Gea, you know, stopping the opposition scoring, and then nicking a goal through one moment of, of, you know, when the ball falls. Ronaldo always has that knack of knowing where it's going to fall, or Cavani again, great finisher. Just somehow manage to get enough pressure to suddenly manage to score a goal. I mean, it is remarkable. You would suggest that this isn't really sustainable, and yeah you end up with that inconsistency where they they're winning enough games but they're not going to threaten to win a championship or anything doing performing like that obviously they're not controlling games at all
2: no they're not and again if it, this might be a legacy of previous management tony but you look at Marcus Rashford you know by common consent he's a he's a shadow of the player that you know he emerged as how real should those worries be about him and is he more a victim of burnout over the last couple of seasons rather than you know his the, the burden if you like of his his social campaigning, which is you know by common consent again being you know, inspirational
3: yeah i mean i wouldn't I wouldn't really focus too much on that you know he just has a particularly high profile extracurricular lifestyle, others don't but i, I, I again. Burnout, a lot of football. We know he's had injury problems, but he was supposed to start this season, come back fit, fresh firing. It's the lack of clarity, I think, that he's suffering from. I think a lot of them are. I think you look at the other teams at the top, you look at and Man City, Liverpool and Chelsea are obviously the three to compare to, but even even Arsenal developing under Arteta and certainly any team managed by Conte, there is no doubt the players know their roles. Now, they may they may not be good enough to, to carry out those, those roles to the best of uh, to what the coach wants. but at United, there's still a lack of clarity. Ranick's started with the four, two, two, two. I mean, at the moment it looks more like a on on Monday, it looked more like a kind of four, four, two, four, two, three, one possibly. But again, it, it, which is not wildly different, it's not like he's completely rewriting everything, but it does feel like from week to week, and this was the same under Solskjaer, these players don't have a consistent message in terms of what their job is, what their roles are, and what they're supposed to be doing. And I think particularly with younger players, and Rashford probably still does just about fit into that category, that is a problem. I think we've seen it with Jaden Sancho, who absolutely flourished at Dortmund in a system that he knew and understood and that was very consistent. Mason Greenwood, to me, looks actually in pretty good form, but again, he's playing in different roles. Rushford looked absolutely bedraggled, didn't he, on Monday? He just didn't look happy at all. But then, who on the United team did? He's just higher profile, so people pick him out. But if you look across the pitch, didn't look like players enjoying their football to me.
2: No, as you mentioned there, um, they've got Aston Villa on Saturday by by way of a change. Villa, Glenn, it seems that they're making their moves in this transfer window What's your view of the Philippe Coutinho loan? Where does he fit in that system?
0: Well, I mean, Gerald's obviously, you know, knows him well and we'll have plans. And I guess, you know, relatively new manager, he's still... You know, building building his own system, so he'll, he'll find a way. At his best, he's a terrific player in terms of opening things up, creating uh, creating opportunities. I mean, they, they haven't really. I mean, I know they've brought in Buendia, who's uh, been a bit uh, patchy and uh, one or two injury problems as well. But and and Bailey, but they obviously haven't replaced Grealish. Now, Coutinho not another Grealish; he's, he's a different sort of player. But yeah, you know, he does add a certain amount of that that creativity. I mean, I guess you said the, the impact Grealish often have from the left. I mean, bringing in Lucas Digne will presumably provide some of that impact from the left. I think there's been issues. I mean, Danny Ings is an excellent player. Having his arrival does seem to mean that Ollie Watkins isn't having quite the same impact he was last year, whereas last year he was very much sort of the central front man. Um, So I guess, yeah, Stephen Jones is still. Imposing his particular blueprint on the team, he's made a very promising start. Uh, they, they look well, quite well focused. Uh, I, mean, I do feel that Dean Smith was a bit unlucky in that there was always going to be regression back to a reasonable set of results at some, yeah, a certain point. And a bit unlucky in one of the games that he lost in that spell before he was fired. So, but yeah, it's, it's, I guess he's, he's just changing the way the team are going to play now. Um, Maybe a bit more possession focus around Coutinho and see how that see how that develops. So he will certainly have his plans. I mean, you can see if it's successful, you'll make it a more, more permanent move there. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's just a loan, isn't it? I think at the moment. And um, but Barcelona yeah. will be quite happy to get his wages off the book. Let's be honest. So we'll see how that goes. I would say uh, Joe will obviously have a good idea having played with, and played with him, and we we'll know what he's on about.
2: Yeah, and I think you made a very good point about Lucas Digne who's, you know, a massive upgrade at left back for them. Is that that transfer was confirmed um, you know, as we've been speaking on Thursday morning. Yeah, you know, be a lot of concentration on the scuffle for fourth Tony North London derby on um Sunday afternoon. Who's got the most to lose?
3: Oh, that's a really good question. Um I get one occasionally, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm completely floored when you do. Um, <laughs> I, at the moment, I think the mood around Tottenham is significantly worse than the mood around Arsenal. I mean, the noises that Conte's made uh, early in the year, that so he's already laying down his position of, of frustration at lack of funds and the, not having good enough players. Whether whether you agree with him or not, that's what he's saying, and he just doesn't look particularly happy. Um, again they, they played they, they did alright in the second half against Chelsea last night but actually generally speaking you felt that if Chelsea needed to step it up they could quite easily and score more if they needed to it feels to me like Arsenal are it's baby steps with Arsenal but they're definitely making progress it feels like Arteta has finally got an 11 that he's happy with again based on younger players obviously you know still ends up, still ends up with kind of granite Xhaka and Thomas Partey in midfield and and then Lacazette at the moment as the 9 of Bamiyang seems to be frozen out. Obviously, this talks about a player coming in from Fiorentina, possibly. Again, we we saw when they lost to Forest in the Cup that actually when you drop beyond Arteta's preferred 11 you're probably looking at inexperience and a lack of quality. And so in the end, I think there's probably more expectations on Conte at Spurs than there are Arteta Arsenal this particular season. So again, Arteta's still got questions to answer, but it does feel like there is progress with them. And if he can keep some of those key players, people like Saka, Smith Rowe, Lacazette, or Odegaard fit for for the second half of the season, they could have a good second half season. Their defense looks much more solid than it did earlier in the season. Whereas Tottenham, I still think they're a question mark. So happiness, squad quality, so big game for them. It is,
2: and you know Conte is never one to uh, you know be um, backward in coming forward, is he? Glenn, you know, they're linked to Lingard in the summer. They're monitoring Dean Henderson, we're told, which probably is understandable after Galini's performance in the semi-final second leg. Conte's talking about signing another centre forward of Harry Kane's level. Good luck with that. Hmm. You know, when you look at their team sheet, are the two names that are never on there, i.e. Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy, probably the most important, that club, because they set the investment model, don't they?
0: They do. And obviously, a huge amount of expenditure has gone on the stadium, which is sensational. (laughs) The the, the problem, obviously, is just the team in it. Yeah, they have been unlucky. The stadium's fantastic. As soon as it's basically, as soon as it's built and ready to be filled, they have a pandemic and no one can no one can go in it. Yeah, which has also affected the other parts of the business model with, with fights and the, the the NFL and so on. So they have been a bit unfortunate, and yeah, obviously they are competing against you know an oligarch, a state funded club, you know. But then again, you know. <laughs> there's, there's not that much money at West Ham either, comparatively, and they're doing pretty well. I uh, haven't spent anywhere near as much. The, the turnover managers has obviously been unfortunate. So, I mean, you look at some of the players that I was working out. Let me see. November, on the 19th of November, Pochettino yeah, was fired. By the same day in 2021, they had five different managers, if you count Ryan Mason in quite an extended period. Now, now one of the team looked confused. Yeah, I mean, Conte's obviously trying to put a bit of shape on into the team and but you've end up with this collection of players some from various places you end up with players like Deli Ali who, who who doesn't look remotely the player he was but obviously there is a player there. So you've got this team this, this squad, many of whom are a bit insecure about where they're going, about how they're supposed to be playing, about what how they fit in everywhere. And now you've got a new quite dogmatic manager who's coming who's gonna have pretty firm ideas about how he wants things played and very high standards that like he sets, which you know, which is why they brought him in obviously and it's going to take a time for all that to shake down. And clearly, yeah, it's all very well say, right, these players aren't good enough, which is pretty much what Marina always said as well, you know, we need to bring in more players and so on. That that doesn't make you feel that great win in the dressing room. Some players will react to that stick approach. Others will like, well, they're gonna get rid of me anyway. You know, it's it's gonna be you know, or, well, I've got two years in my contract. I'm getting paid you know, hundred pounds a week. They can't get rid of me. So it, it creates a difficult atmosphere sometimes in the dressing room. And obviously, the, the way to solve that is by winning matches. And they've been winning a few of them, but not enough of them. So again, you know, as Tony saying, it's a pretty big weekend for them. And um, obviously, is a big miss. Absolutely, a really big miss. You watch, look at him last night without Son. the general anything, like half the team. I mean, not only for his brilliance, but he's also his, his commitment. So he, he's a massive miss on the side at the moment.
3: I think when you look at when you look at a team going forward, you need to have creativity or pace. I mean, you really need both. The best teams have both. Mm. And when I say pace, I don't just—I mean pace moving the ball as well as the pace of the individuals in it. The problem Spurs have got is that ever since Christian Eriksen left, they've never replaced that real sense of creativity or guile. You know, and Ndombele came in with a big reputation, he's a different kind of creative player, but for for whatever reason, successive managers now haven't really trusted him. And so if you don't have that creativity, and Deli Alli is another one who makes those runs into spaces, but again, has fitness problems, is he the player he was, who knows. At which point you then look at, that they rely so much on the pace and energy that Son brings in conjunction with Harry Kane, the two-run the same wavelength in a team of players who don't always look like they are. So when one of those two is, is gone, I mean, obviously there are all those worries about Kane leaving in the summer. He stayed, but the reality is that Son is just as important. So losing him for any amount of time is an absolute disaster for Conte. Yeah, it certainly is.
2: I must admit, I do like Conte's interview style. There was a lovely line that he came up with about which, which obviously. You know, it was a reference to Ndombele, which is that everyone is the owner of their gestures. I suspect we might have the odd gesture or two from him over the rest of the season. Looking back at, at Arsenal, Glenn, if you could please, they're, they're linked with Dusan Vlavich. £75 million. Is there a hint of warning in what happened last time they spent that sort of money on Pepe? Well,
0: they're obviously massively overpay for Pepe and uh, people pay for that venture at the club with their jobs. Also, oh, obviously, a big, big club. Arteta's been saying this week, where you know, everyone still wants to play for us. We're a big, big club, but they aren't so big that they can afford to waste seventy-five million pounds, unlike a couple of their competitors. So they do need to get that right. I mean, looking at him, he does look like, you know, he does look like a player, and he, he's, he's yeah, you know, he's still young, so there's a, you know, there's a resale value as well, and he fit in, and you could see that, you it's, know, but he's, he's been doing it now for what about two seasons in Serie A? Yeah, you know, twenty-one. That's pretty impressive. But Pepe, they came with a pretty good resume. From his time at Lille, and he's been scoring quite a lot of goals there and played across the front line in one two position. So it's, it, are there clubs these days do a massive amount of what we call due diligence on signings? They, they look at them a lot, they study them a lot. You would assume. That there's been a lot of work being put into, you know, how how he is, who he is, will he fit in, how he will fit in. I mean, clearly Aubameyang's on his way. You know, one way or the other, they're going to be get they'll get shot of him as soon as they can. Lacazette, they're still talking about him moving on, and not quite sure that he fits in with the, the team that he's building anyway. Though he's been he's had a, he's had a good half season for them to to be fair. So you would assume I mean, the emergence of Martinelli are getting a decent prolonged spell in the team or a fitness. I think he's a, he's a big bonus for them. It's given another sort of um, a goal-scoring thrust. I mean, I mean Rowe can't even get in the first 11 at the moment. and he, he, Every time he plays, he's scoring goals. So there, there is quite a lot of attacking impetus going there, but clearly they do need one more striker. And he could be the player. But, yeah, they can't afford to make 75 million mistakes. You
2: know, lest we forget Tony, although, to be fair, Glenn didn't forget it, West Ham are fourth. Um, Jared Bowen... Scored twice against Norwich on Wednesday night. Now it's eight in the season. The sort of player I would hazard a guess will be quite interesting at Liverpool. What do you reckon? I don't know why you're asking me that. Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, he's um, he has that relentlessness about him, doesn't he? Mm. That, that Klopp absolutely loves, and I mean, Moyes loves it even more at the moment. It's funny. He's a he's a player who's he's, he hasn't come the sexy route, has he? You know he was very important. did did great job at Hull for a, a while. West Ham brought him up, and you know didn't immediately go into the first team. Has taken a little bit of time to, to acclimatise to the Premier League, but he's absolutely flying. But again, going back to the Man United point, this is a team where everyone knows their role. The clarity that the players go onto the pitch with is so strong, and that gives them when you when you work from that kind of base as a player, I think it gives you the opportunity to play with a bit more freedom and a bit more confidence because you you have so much confidence in the players around you, the structure of the team around you. And he is absolutely flying again. It helps that they've got in Antonio, you know, an absolutely sensational number nine, who is so important for everything they do. Suchek and Rice are brilliant. I mean, what will United give for Suchek and Rice, by the way, playing as, as, as a double pivot for them. And I think, what you see is is a player who's thriving on that. He plays with confidence. He's he's got ability on both feet. He drifts into the middle. He can take players on wide. He makes intelligent runs. He does tick a lot of the, whether he's got that express pace that, that that Klopp likes from his from his wide attackers. I don't know, but he's certainly got a lot of qualities that that the Liverpool manager would admire.
2: Because mm, isn't that going to be West Ham's problem, Glenn, That you know they might struggle to keep a couple of their their best players.
0: Well just say about Bowen, it just goes to show that there are players out there, you don't necessarily have to look overseas. I mean, um Maguire, Bowen, Robertson, there's three pretty good players that come out of the whole city in the last few seasons. Mm. Um and so there are players to be looked for. You know, it might be a big step to go straight from there to Liverpool, though obviously Robertson did it. But uh yeah, sometimes instead of looking overseas, maybe look closer to home. And the problem obviously West Ham will have is, you know, there will be people sniffing around. They, they they've had investment. They've now got a big ground, which is beginning to feel like a football ground. Yeah, if they get in the Champions League, why would you necessarily leave? I mean, clearly their wage structure was going to be lower than some of the people will be looking to sniff around there. But they've held on Declan Rice so far, which has been quite an achievement. Yeah, unless they get a sense where players enjoy playing there, they feel there's something growing there. There, you know, there is a big you know you are playing in front of sixty thousand people every week. If you could get into you know, I mean, they're in European football this year and doing well. We'll see how that progresses as the season goes on. I mean, the what they would need, I think, if you're you know, a Bowen or one of the other players there that other things will be sniffing around, you need to be convinced of West Ham are looking to, to build, to get bigger. You need to be getting the message from the owners of the yeah You know, OK, we're now going to sign this player and this player's what We're going to strengthen. You know, we're going to kick on. You know, so this isn't going to be the peak of where we are. We can see ourselves establishing ourselves. You know, if we can get in the, into the Champions League or progress... Because... There will be stretched later on this season with the you know, more European fixtures because, yeah, as Tony mentioned, and, and Tony is hugely important. There's not a lot if he's a, if he's not injured, if he's not fit, uh, and they've missed him when he's not being fit. So yeah, what they do lack, like quite a lot of clubs, surprisingly, in the Premier League, is, is that is a bit of depth we referred to already with Spurs and Arsenal. Yeah, you know, when the key players are out, so we'll see. But so it's quite an important time for West Ham. There is, for the first time for many many years, there's a real sense that there could be something happening at West Ham. And it's absolutely crucial that they can try and persuade those players to, to buy into to what's going. Mm.
3: Can you see them staying fourth, Tony? You'd expect that one of the teams with many more resources and players beneath them will put a run together. But then on the evidence of what we've seen so far this season, that would have to be one of Arsenal, Tottenham and Man United. And maybe they won't. Who knows? Arsenal are a team that don't have Europe, of course and Ton anymore. Um so there is potential, but but, but West Ham are the most are currently the most impressive team of that bunch. Glenn's right, we'll we'll see what happens later on in the season as, as fixtures start to pile up a bit. And of course there'll be I mean if you assume there'll be more COVID postponements, who knows that could cause absolute chaos still. And the teams with the smaller squads are probably those likely to 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 be the ones facing massive fixture pile-ups later in the season if it continues as it currently is who knows how that will play out but I think there's a probably a big part of a lot of people would quite like to see West Ham stay up there
0: I think yeah, they can if they can keep those key players fit I mean what is impressive about them every time they've looked like they've they've, they've been found out or they start to go you know, they, they've come back with, with with winning results I mean he's lost three of the back four and yet somehow managed to come back with that and they won three on the bounce When that happened, you're sort of thinking, well, they're going to be found out now when you look at the the players coming in. But they've managed to sort of find a way to keep getting results. So that's been impressive. The resilience of the team, which isn't something you traditionally associate with West Ham, has been very impressive.
3: And let's not forget, they've beaten Liverpool and Chelsea in the league and dumped both Manchester teams out of the League Cup. Like, Mm. this is not a team they're not too messed with at all. I I think I say say this every time I come on, but David Moyes has just done one hell of a job there.
2: Mm at the other end of the table Norwich who, who lost at West Ham on Wednesday night six straight defeats seems to be a general lack of belief okay they've they've got Everton at home at the weekend but they're done aren't they um, Glenn?
0: Well you would assume so I mean was it eight goals in 20 games um, yeah as D Smith said after last night they're only three points from safety <laughs> 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 yeah. admittedly, that also means getting above a team we you are now spending quite significant sums of money and are going to a much better side than them. But they are only three points on safety. And if they, I mean, Everton aren't in a great place at the moment. If they could beat Everton, suddenly, you know, they're actually technically out of the bottom four. Well, let me see, not a goal difference, but, you know, suddenly they, they climb off the bottom, probably, and you get that injection of confidence in the ground. I mean, every football club, I mean, if, you, if you said to Norwich, OK, it's going to be the end of January... You've got thirteen points. You scored nine, ten goals. How how you feel? You say, "Well, we, we feel terrible." But if they win against Everton at the weekend, they, they will feel great. You know, the Monday there'd be a bounce around the club. They'd be in the in the, in the changing areas and in the, in the, in the tra- training ground on the pitch, and that can change the whole momentum of the club. Momentum's absolutely critical in football, as we all know in, in any sport, and what Dean Smith has to do is change the direction of Neuge's momentum and that can only happen by winning a couple of games. I mean, they won against Charlton obviously in the cup with a scrappy win but it was at least a win and um, if they could somehow get a win or a couple of wins from somewhere and get off the bottom then that momentum will change. I mean, I'd have to say it doesn't look very likely. Yeah, you, you've you, the sense. I suspect that you already maybe thinking about next season and, and bouncing back again, uh, which I guess is one of the reasons why Dean, why Dean got the job because he's, he's got teams out of that division. But nothing can be ruled out when there's only three or four points at stake.
2: Yeah, and probably only four clubs involved in it. Yeah, Newcastle, you know, being one of them, Tony. It did seem from the outside anyway. The first hint of panic in scrabbling around for a striker after that confirmation of Callum Wilson's calf injury. Chris Wood, at £25 million, he's a regular scorer, not lavish. Probably, you know, the Newcastle fans will love his attitude. But will his real value be in
3: weakening Burnley? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a, uh, you know, he's 30 years old, so they're they're not investing in the future here. This is a, we need results now, purchase. Burnley... We feel like I say this every season about Burnley. It looks like this could be the season, and then Sean Dyche somehow manages to conjure up a run, and they end up in relative safety. But they really do look in trouble this season. Losing Chris Wood, who is the absolute focal point of their attack, has become is their most important player. I think would be an absolute disaster. That doesn't guarantee. I mean, it severely weakens Burnley. Doesn't guarantee Newcastle points because you know, as, as discussed, they they look pretty terrible at the moment. And losing Callum Wilson is an absolute disaster for them. But Chris Wood will certainly add something up front, like you say, not many goals, but they may not need that many goals. They might just need to tie it up a bit and score a few, and that might be enough in what you say looks like a pretty dismal relegation battle.
0: The one thing I would say in favour of um, Sean Dyche, obviously, he'd be furious at losing his star, you know, star striker at this stage. It's happened very early in the window. There, there is the opportunity, and he has got some cash, obviously. Assuming we give him most of it to spend. There is opportunity to try and bring somebody in. Who you bring in is another question. I mean, yeah, they don't tend to shop overseas very much. Though corner has been a good signing. So you cast around thinking, I mean, I was trying to think the other day, who could you maybe replace Chris Wood with? And it's not that easy. But it is early in the window. I remember interviewing Phil Brown years ago when he was at Derby. And there was a period they had a bit of a promotion push. <laughs> quite a lot of promotion pushes over the years. And Gregor Raziak, remember him? He was up front for them. And I think they were sold to Spurs something like 11 o'clock in the evening on deadline day. And he was completely screwed. You know, it doesn't matter how much money he got in he an hour to try and find someone to replace him, which clearly isn't going to happen. And you know, Razit never went anywhere at Spurs. He just sat on the bench for a while and then disappeared. Uh, Derby's promotion without their star striker just, just faded away and Brown got, got the sack you know, a few months later. And it was like it completely buried, him, no chance. Whereas here, there is you know, a couple of weeks to go. They can look around, they can try and get someone into a place. It's not going to be easy, but there is a possibility.
2: Mm. Newcastle, Tony, are at home to Watford on Saturday, which probably looks like a a must win,
3: doesn't it? Yeah, definitely, for both teams, really. I think we might talk a bit about Watford at the same time, in that they've obviously invested it. They look like they're backing Ranieri, although with Watford backing a manager in a transfer window doesn't mean they won't sack him three weeks later. I was actually looking at Watford's results, looking at their, their, their four league victories this season were against a kind of court-cold Aston Villa who'd been struggling with COVID in pre-season on the first day of the season. They then Their next win was away at Norwich, as discussed, struggling, lack of quality, looked destined for the drop. And their other two wins were 5-2 at Everton and 4-1 against Man United. Both of those wins, while they showed that Watford can score goals, it said a lot more about the teams they beat than them themselves. It seems if they when they come across teams that are well coached and stable and secure, they struggle. Um, so that's all right. They
0: playing Newcastle this week. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah,
3: well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, this is thing is. If, I mean, there's a long way to go, but if Watford win, that takes them five points clear of Newcastle with a game in hand. So it's a huge game for them, and probably the best time they will get to play Newcastle, I would imagine. So huge game for them, but again, we're just looking at a lot of Ls in their form timeline. So. Yeah, I think in the, in the long term, the prognosis for Watford probably doesn't look great, even if they do win at the weekend.
2: Understandably enough, we concentrate on the managerial churn at Watford. But what about the turnover of players? I was looking at it last night. They've had 21 players come in since July. 19 have gone out. Um, four already this month, a couple of midfield players and a couple of defenders. You know, that might make some form of business sense, Glenn, but what about
0: continuity? It's like one of the Sunday League teams, isn't it? We introduce to new players each week. Okay, what's your name again? Um, <laughs> we all played with teams like that, and it's really, really successful. Uh,
2: Most I of mean, them are ringers, aren't they? <laughs> well,
0: yeah, normally is the case. Yeah, you know, when the referee, what's your name? You try to remember what name you've been given before the kickoff. Um, <laughs> so it has got a ring of that. I mean, um, yeah, it, it can't be easy. Creating a, a, a coaching structure and a sense of where players are playing, and you know, we, you know, important relationships between like centre halves and you know, right backs and right side of midfielders, and the goalkeeper, in the back four, and the two and you know, the striker, and his midfield. All those relationships take time to gel to build up, and it, it can't be easy when you've got three or four new players coming in all the time. I Me, mean, the, the short of thing about Watford's um, record, I guess, is, is how successful it has been, given that the incredible turnover of players and managers in the last five years. They have had, you know, a reasonable amount of success. But a uh, many area, obviously, is extremely experienced coach. with a great personality but this, is, this would be a test for anybody, to be honest. I mean, you just have to hope that there's somewhere in these players, that you know, there's, there's more people like Sar and, and, and Dennis who have that individual brilliance that they can somehow conjure results. It's a bit like what United are doing, but in a slightly different way. They're relying on individual qualities much as anything and hope that some of these players are yeah, sort of gems and can turn those moments in. Mean, the other week, uh, Pedro, I mean, it probably should have been a penalty against Spurs. I mean, it, it, they've got quite a lot of players who look good players. But Mm. it can't be easy to get them into a functional system in the circumstances.
2: No. I must say, I do love Ranieri. There was a a clip on social media of uh, when the lights went out at Leicester and he was in mid-sort of rant at a couple of players and he just kept going. You know, it it was as if nothing had happened. It was fantastic. Um, You know, we do concentrate on managers, Tony. Just want to concentrate on Wolves, who are are playing Southampton at the weekend, another uproarly mobile club. Bruno Large, is he starting to get
3: the credit he deserves? Um, I hope so, yeah. I mean, I watched I watched him play Man United at the start of the season and they hadn't had the best start. They were struggling scoring goals. And, and as you might expect, they had the majority of the game but lost 1-0. And that seemed to be their run, the, the run of the green in, in the first few weeks. And there were kind of murmurs already that, that things weren't good. But you could see then that there was already a, a slight change in in, in in approach from Nuno. Lager is is... is a more possession-based coach. He wants his teams to play. He wants his team to go forward. Doesn't just sit back. Albeit they can sometimes probably move it a bit, a bit too slowly for for my liking. But I then watched them again against Man United in the in the reverse fixture, and as we know, they were brilliant. I think he's had a few he's had a few issues to begin with. Obviously Jimenez having to to acclimatize him, get him back into the team after that horrific injury. That was always going to take a little bit of time. Traore's form is just inconsistent. One of their better players from last season, Pedro Neto, who's a kind of young attacking player, is, is, has been out for much of the season. And then there's been other, other imports that have struggled to, to adapt a little bit. Fabio Silva starting to look like he, he might be a player, but he's taken time. People like Daniel Podence, Trincao, who haven't had the immediate impact. But what you are seeing with Wolves, in my view, is a team that is going in the right way. Again, clarity of message. They, the players know what they're supposed to do. They know their roles. Certain players, some of those players I've talked about are beginning to improve, show a bit more their worth. Jimenez is starting to look like a bit more like the old Jimenez that he was before the injury. And I just think this is a team that is incredibly well coached. Larger's worked back in the day with, with Carlos Carvajal. He's doing a, a brilliant job at Braga in, in the Portuguese league at the moment. These are these are proper coaches. And I think Wolves fans generally are really, really happy with the way things are going. I, I think they'll beat Southampton at the weekend. Yeah. As a final
2: point, you know, We've talked a lot, Glenn, haven't we, about the iniquities of of the postponement system. You know, there's a a growing campaign that January signings should be banned from rescheduled games. What do you think of that? But also, what do you think about the whole issue of postponements?
0: I don't think banning the new signings from games is really feasible and certainly I can't say I can bring it in mid-season without having the, the rules placed to place. I mean, you're going to end up with the same situation where teams are going to be saying, well, you know, we got, haven't going enough players because we've also sold players um, if you're bringing players in. So I don't think it's really feasible. I do feel that the Premier League and the EFL have, have completely dropped the ball on this one in terms of their advanced planning. I mean, yeah, the, the likelihood of something like this happening wasn't particularly extreme. I mean, we've had this, you know, wave of COVID coming back and forth. Uh, there should have been plans in place. And also, they've completely missed plan, pre-planning in terms of the regulations, and strictures. I mean, you look at, I mean, Italy the other week, you know, there was a free game awarded 3-0 because one side weren't able to fill the team. Okay, that's it. You can't fill the team. That's your fault. Yeah. So it's straightforward. We've had the situation in rugby where games have been called off. I think the Italy one's a bit extreme. I think the Spanish one's better where basically you have to raise a team. doesn't matter how who you have to get. You have to raise a team. And then the FA Cup have stronger rules. Everybody played played in the FA Cup of the weekend. Uh, it didn't matter where you managed to get the players from. You know, if you've got you know you, these clubs have vast squads. They have under twenty three squads. You know, I think it, the other thing is there's been a complete lack of clarity in how games have been called off. I mean, the idea that you're calling games off because you've got a couple of players away at the African Nations and a couple of injuries and that's ridiculous. I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah, you know, players who um, aren't vaccinated shouldn't be counted. It's their own fault. Yeah, you know, clubs who have been saying yeah. You're made very clearly you get your players vaccinated i mean the nba in america unvaccinated players separate dressing rooms separate dining areas they're locked down at home you know they're not allowed to go out anywhere at home except to go they pick up the kids from school and essential shopping go to training on the road they're not allowed. to basically leave the hotel except to go for training some of them can't even play home games because unvaxxed players aren't allowed in indoor arenas in some states and they're not paid for those games So, incredibly, guess what? They've got, like, something 97% vaccination rates because life is really, really difficult if you're not vaccinated as an NBA player. And for coaches, referees, and all-player-facing staff, it's completely mandatory. And the boost has been made mandatory. So they've completely... uh, The Premier League hasn't been run quite so well since Skidmore left. You know, uh, love him or hate him, it's not been run as well. And... They've completely dropped dropped it on this one, and we've left with this mess where you've got a lack of transparency. You know, clubs are being accused of deliberately calling off games because they've got a couple of injuries to key players. Other clubs get annoyed about you know missing game after game. The same's happening in the football league as well. I mean, their their teams going weeks without a game, and they're actually putting quite a lot of money and effort into make sure their players are available and the opposition aren't available. If you can't fill the team out of all the players you've got, like the, the FA FA rules, is you should forfeit the game. Yeah, you know, they've got enough players in these squads.
3: Do you agree with that, Tony? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do I do agree with, with Glenn on the, on the kind of, um, you know, teams not being allowed to, to play new signings. I just, I don't, I think, I think this, I also think this is an, an issue that's only being brought up because of the current situation, which is a complete mess and which we hope won't see again. I can't remember this being, you know, games get called off occasionally, you know, waterlogged pitches, snow, whatever. That happens in kind of November, December, those games often end up being in the new year. I can't remember managers having this complaint before, so I do think this is very specific to a time that. I mean, I'm saying this now in absolute optimism and probably total naivety to think this won't happen again in 12 months. But I think we all hope that it that it doesn't, and therefore I think it's probably just a one time only issue that will probably go away. <laughs> well, you and I, you and I might remember it did used to be quite common that games. Of-
0: Teams have a lot of games to catch up on because of the quality of pitches and stuff. These days, everyone's got undersold heating. You know, everyone's got great dead drainage. You don't get all that laughter postponements. But it wasn't, you know, we go back 20 years, it wasn't that uncommon for teams to have three or four games in hand on someone else.
2: Mm, But we are getting close to the the limit of, you know, Saturday, Tuesday, Thursdays, aren't we, towards Mm. the end of the season? I suppose the the, the key issue here, um, underpinning everything, is that if you dig beneath the surface of professional football, you discover a game that's shaped by insecurity, suspicion and selfishness. So there's no wonder then that people are ready to think the worst of clubs who are asking for postponements. The problem, you know, as you suggested, Glenn, is the system. It needs to change. Only by change can trust be re-established. Do you agree? I hope so. But in the meantime, thanks to Glenn and Tony for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.